So welcome. Um, it's Mark Littlewood again from the business of software. Um, but you haven't come to listen to me or talk to me today. Um, you never do. And I'm never offended by that. We always have um, far more brilliant people um, on the show. Um, today, we have a special guest uh, all the way from the west coast of America, Scott Birkin. He's uh, an old uh, boss uh, friend and uh, favourite speaker, has done a number of talks over the years, and I'm delighted to say that he's going to be talking this year at Boss USA um, around um, unleashing creativity in the enterprise and within your own organisations, within, within your own minds, actually. I think one of the things that really struck me when I read his book um, last week was that I was sort of expecting this to be a quite software-related um, conversation, a uh, software-related, business-related uh, book, but I uh, was really, um, really struck by how relevant some of the ideas and some of the principles and processes are to um, everyday life and learning to do things and write, do creative writing and all sorts of things. So um, without any further ado, let me welcome um, the person you've come to see. It's Scott Birkin. Hello. Hey, now you look like you've frozen in time or you've mastered ventriloquism or something. But uh, hey, can, you still, can you still hear me? We can hear you perfectly. So um, let's just assume that uh, that's going to work out. But uh, do, has your screen frozen? I see an image of myself looking a little bit confused. So yes, it has frozen. Oh. <laughs> You're a, you're a lucky man. You're a lucky man to <laughs> be able to look at the screen and see yourself at uh, a moment's yeah. notice. Yeah, I, that's really unfair. I can promise, though, that I am not actually frozen in that state, that I'm exactly. actually smiling and I'm very happy to, uh, to chat with you. It's only the ugly people that move in this, in this program. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep me up. Just I'll keep keep myself on screen until you uh, come back. But uh, Scott, thanks so much for coming on. I know you've been really busy um, because you've just launched another best-selling book, um, "The Dance of the Possible." And tell us all about it. Well, the idea for the book was simple. I've spent my career, various different things I've done, managing software teams, and now writing books. And ideas are central to all of them. And um, in the past, I in order to do my job well, I've read a lot about creative thinking and the psychology of it and the neuroscience and the history of creativity in the arts and in business. It's just been a pet, a pet interest because of I wanted to be good at my job. But over the years, I've realized how many misnomers and, and romantic beliefs people have about ideas and how they work. And part of what I've cultivated is knowledge about the the truth for how these things work and um i wanted to write a book that was really short and simple and based on actual history and actual science that could be a simple guide for anybody who's going to be spending their time working with ideas so that's that was the the goal of the book it's a little bit of a sequel to the myths of innovation which is one of my earlier books and that book was more about teams and work culture and this book is meant to be for anybody, uh, as you mentioned in, the, in the, your opening intro. Anybody can pick this up who's a manager or a writer or a programmer or a designer or anything. And it's really about the, the patterns of and the experience you have when you're working with ideas. Very interesting. Okay. And uh, when you say it is for anybody, um, 
I bought a copy and I read it last week and I left it lying around rather stupidly like I do with uh, the only magazine that I subscribe to, which is a satirical, satirical magazine called Private Eye. And um, they always end up in my daughter's bedroom, every Private Eye. And <laughs> lo and behold, your book's, book's gone. And I went in this morning and woke her up and said, where is it? Where is it? She's like, oh, I can't remember. And it was in her bed. <laughs> She'd been, reading, she'd been reading it at two o'clock this morning so there you go you've got a 13 year old fan. hey you know uh we have to reach the next generation somehow so so thanks for helping with that uh, no worries she will be uh she's a she's a she's a good advocate of these sorts of things um now someone's just saying that they can't hear you which is disaster hmm. um you, but you can hear me though, yes? Uh, I can hear you fine. So um, can you hear? Yeah, okay. Uh, so Elizabeth Harding um, sent in a message saying, am I the only one that can't see or hear Scott, but can see and hear Mark? Now, Elizabeth, you poor, poor thing. I can't imagine what that's like for you. Um, try refreshing your screen and see if that works. Painful. Painful. <laughs> Radical candor is the best policy here. <laughs> so um, I want to start. Um, I want to start off asking you one question, I guess, which is: What's the biggest lie about creativity? What's the biggest myth? And I think this this it did strike me, kind of thinking back to your myth of innovation book, which um, became a book and then just sort of an endless additional set of lists of things, didn't it? So I started to kind of kind of collect them. But but what are those what are they what are the sort of what are the things we need to kind of get out of the way before we, we start talking about creativity? Well the simplest the simplest thing is to we assume that it it's um, something unto itself that you can do a good job on a project or you can solve a problem and somehow you're not being if you don't do some magic dance or something that you're not being creative. So one of the things early on in the book I talk about is not using that word at all. A better word for, for creative thinking is just, is just thinking that you have a problem or a goal and you're going to experiment with some different ideas and try things out so you can learn more about the problem and try to solve it. And when you frame it that way, a lot of people are now more accepting of themselves and they're more willing to think, oh, I guess maybe I am kind of creative because I, I am good at asking questions and trying things out. I thought creativity meant that I have epiphanies and flashes of insight and there's some special secret magic spell that I just don't know. And so that's probably the greatest one. And in all of my travels and encounters, a lot of people who are very smart and they're actually good at developing ideas, they just, they really do deeply believe there's some magic thing that they don't have. And um, that's just not true. I used to think creative people had ponytails and sticky up hair <laughs> and uh, wore very bright trousers and things like that. But uh, I mean, it's, it's it's fascinating that 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 whole thing. The other other thing that kind of comes up when I talk about creativity with people is some people are very very down on it, very negative. I mean, and when I talk about there was one particular example that I was thinking about a couple of weeks ago. A guy was actually saying, "I wish the people in my company were less creative." Because they're constantly wow. going off and trying to do things. They're not sticking to process. They're not sticking to the kind of the rules, as it were. And that's something I'd like to touch on later, later on as well. Because I think there is a there is a section of the population that 
is threatened by creativity or sees creativity as something when something about um, creativity and disruption potentially are, are kind of inextricably linked. They are, but disruption is another one of these words that I really don't like very much. That it, it's um, Clayton Christensen did a bunch of good work. He wrote a bunch of a couple of good books, and he used that term. And I, I bet that I haven't seen him talk about it, but I bet he's been surprised that that word itself has taken on the meaning that it has. That uh, in any other context, the word disrupt. It's a negative term. It's it's something that is being done to you that you don't want, and somehow we've turned it around in in our in our the business world and made it into something else. And that always concerns me when a word takes on a meaning other than its origin, because it means people aren't really thinking that much about it. Um, disruption is is really about really a better word is progress that you want to do better than your competitor, that you want to make a better product or solve a problem in a better way. And disruption doesn't necessarily mean that. And so when people tell me I'm, a, I'm an industry disruptor or our goal is to disrupt, I'm like, that's a, that's a really weird goal. I don't, think, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you're thinking about the language you're using very carefully if you use that word. But uh, but to your point, sure, if, um, if the goal is to change an industry, you're going to have to develop a different way of thinking about customers or about products to have that effect. And to do that, you're going to need to work with ideas. So creativity, of course, comes into play there. <laughs> we are, I think, having some trouble with the audio on this. But uh, I'm going to, it seems to be working for our test over here. So I'm going to kind okay. of keep going. Um, so I guess a few things I'd like to, like to kind of just go into to set, to set this conversation up. One of the things you do in the book, and... Great book, by the way, and one of the things I absolutely love about it is it's short. <laughs> I mean, I mean that in the in the, in the nicest in the nicest. I know that you world. do, but I know you well enough that I'm laughing at the other way. <laughs> <laughs> I love so, that I only had to, I only I love that I only had to read your words for just you know ten minutes. It was the, it was great. Well, I have this theory: Bus business books are different to. Usually different to books you read for pleasure. So sometimes you want to go off and read the Golden Compass and have two thousand pages and sit there in a uh, on a deck chair or by the pool while uh, your children are drowning because you're not paying attention to them. And that's, I mean, that's that's kind of reading for pleasure. And then reading for business and for work and for learning is about getting information across in in a succinct way as efficiently as possible. And most authors, and I know. I know most of the authors I speak to kind of send the first draft of their, of their book to a publisher. Very few of them say, okay, you've got to cut it down by 90%. Most of the time it's, oh, you need to kind of bulk it out to X number of pages. Um, and so you have a really great idea and about two chapters into the book, you're kind of done with it. And then you've just got like, story after story after you know, case study, whatever it is. And I think the real value of a business book is the value of the information it contains multiplied by the inverse of the number of pages. Mm. Okay. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, Other way around. Sorry, that is the, the, the value of the information it contains divided by the number of pages. I see. Yeah. Sure. I mean, concision makes sense. Uh, yeah. You'd think that all, all good books have a 
potency to them. And um, anyway, that, that was certainly part of the goal. This is the shortest book I've published. I thought that uh, the goal here, the word create is a verb. It's um, an activity. And that's another sort of problem about all this language is we spend so much time talking about and categorizing these things and confusing the consumption of literature about innovation with the actual doing of it. And so if that's really what I want to teach, then the book should be short because it should make you want to get up and go do something. Yeah. So buy the book if you haven't. I'm sure a lot of people who are watching have. Um, and it's available on Amazon or scottburkin.com is probably the best place to do it because then you get a royalty and you get a referral commission or something. That's right. right. So there you go. Double bang. Um, Three three areas you kind of split the book into, I suppose, broadly. Idea creation, idea development, and idea deployment. Do you want to kind of just give us a little overview of that framework and how it how it works? Uh, sure. I, the, the the book itself makes fun of these sorts of framework things because I, I think yes. they, they tend to be very they tend to be frustratingly incomplete. Whenever you see the five easy steps or the 10 killer tricks and it all sounds great when you read it and then you sit down to do work and you realize that there's a lot more that you need to do or fundamentally you realize that the hard part is never going to be in those steps so the the book very briefly talks about creativity methods i have to offer some advice on how to generate ideas but i really don't think that that's the hard part that you can very quickly Using anything, using mind maps or brainstorming methods, or a lot of what uh, I offer are different techniques for combining ideas. That a lot of what you're doing when you're generating ideas is you're taking two different kinds of things and you're trying to put them together and see what happens. You can deconstruct the idea. So the f the first the, the first part of the book is really very simply explaining ideas are all made from other ideas. You can take things apart, and only when you can take ideas apart are you then open to the possibility of how you can create new things out of it. And then a lot of the book, the second half of the book, or the second the second part of the book, is um, talks more about these, these things, these challenges that never go away. And that's where the, the title of the book comes from, The Dance of the Possible. That even if you're brilliant and you're smart and you have epiphanies every hour, that you still have these fundamental tensions that don't go away. And one of them, the, the, the title of the book, Dance the possible first to how you go through these phases where you're trying to get more ideas, and then at some point you realize you have to converge and narrow down your possibilities so you can actually release something. And you go back and forth, uh, getting more ideas, diverging, converging, diverging, converging. And that's a very common thing that's taught, but what's not taught is how much uncertainty there always is in that process. You never quite know if you, maybe if you just explored a little bit longer you would have gotten an even better idea. Like you don't know. So people want to believe that somehow the more you do this, the more companies you start or the more books that you write, that your certainty about how far, how long you're going to do these, these kinds of dances will get better. And I don't think that that's true. I think that what gets better is your recognition of how much uncertainty there always is. And that that, that tension is inherent in doing something new. The only way you can be certain about the outcome of a creative process is if you're doing something exactly like what you've done before, in which case it can't possibly be all that creative. And then the last part of the book, a fair amount of the book is actually about psychology. 
I again, I don't think that idea generation and all these methods are that hard to learn. But managing your own psychology and your own motivation, uh, that's hard and that's personal. And no book can tell you how to do that. So one of the last chapters in the book is about how to stay motivated. And I run through the primary motivating factors, why all the people that we admire do this stuff. And I can't promise the reader that uh, which specific one will be the reason why they're willing to write a third draft or they're willing to decide to pitch the 10th you know, VC looking for money. But that you have to have some source of motivation that's the driving force for you to deal with, with the challenges that you inherently face. And so um, it's, it's just a two or three hour read and it's the best job I, I thought I could do of covering every angle of what really makes working with ideas hard. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think the, the, the bit about motivation was really interesting for me. The other thing that was uh, really resonated, I suppose, was the um, the kind of the idea that as you're developing and, 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 and developing ideas, you have to be a lot less precious and a lot less sensitive. And, and I think you're right. A lot of this stuff is... Um, it's emotional and it's about how you deal with your deal with yourself. Do you want to kind of just give a little bit of, yeah, it, it's, it's another one of these things. It's uh it's not quite a paradox, but there, it is a, um, it is a balancing act because in order to spend a year writing a book or starting a company or, or doing anything interesting, you do have to have an ego. You have to, <laughs> like you do, uh, you have yeah. to believe that you are capable of doing this thing and that, you're going to make something from nothing that will have value to the world. That's not really. That's not a humble thing uh, that you're, you have. Some, uh, and, and you have ambition, but at the same time, having ambition and a big ego is a trap because it means you're probably less likely to listen to good feedback. You're probably going to obsess about things, and that's not going to make you productive. And so, it's another balancing act of. Um, so, there's a chapter in the book that's about don't be, don't be precious. And it's a reminder that as much as you really do care, at the same time, you have to be able, at least at certain moments, to be detached from it and realize that this is not that important. That even if you have a you know a billion dollar company in the grand scheme of the universe, is this really that important? Um, <laughs> no, uh, it's not. Uh, there have been lots of the companies that have done that well. Or writing a book. Uh, I think this book's really good, but in the grand scheme of the universe, does it matter that much? Uh, no, it doesn't. And to most people, you know, a lot. Billions of people on the planet don't buy books or don't, don't read English. They're never going to see it. So for them, the fact that I finished a book is irrelevant. So don't being pre not being precious is about a certain kind of humility, but it also has a practical application, which is by not being precious, you're open to see what weaknesses your creations have. And you're willing to take criticism and feedback on them, which if you want to make more things, that's the only way you're going to learn is by putting something out in the world getting feedback on it or maybe looking back at it a month later with a with a sit with a, a skeptical eye and looking at it go you know i think i have a new idea now for the next thing so by not being precious it allows you to move on and move forward and that's that's really important yeah that's a really fascinating what you're what you're saying I mean, I, I think whenever anyone is doing anything they get really wrapped up in it and it becomes a bigger bigger thing and i, I think one of the things that steve jobs really understood more than anything else was that and it's that classic um, comment he made to the guy he was trying to recruit to come into his company. Forget who it was, but um, I think he was he was one of the big uh, Coca Cola or Pepsi execs, and he sort of said, "You know, do you want to sell sweet water or 
actually make yeah, a I think, it was, John, I think it was John Scully. I think it was the, uh, yeah. Um, and that's an incredibly powerful like, human beings. I, I think people love to think that we're immensely sophisticated organisms that have evolved over, or even just been put here on Earth, um, depending on your perspective, but have uh, evolved over years and um, really know what's going on and, and they can kind of resist outside pressures, but it's extraordinary how well susceptible people are to, to that. And I, I, I think, yeah, good point. If um, you've got a, a lot of that is ego driven, I guess. Absolutely. Um, we're fascinating creatures. And I think that's, that's what's that's the, those challenges are harder than, than the, the methods, creative methods and, and playbooks and, and, uh, you can learn all that stuff, but still you have to deal with your own psychology and your own how you approach the work that you're doing. So what's the sort of one, what's the one thing that if people are struggling with creativity in their business, and every business gets to this point, and you have established processes, um, you have and customers, you have staff, you have all sorts of things. Um, and I know you've written quite a lot of, uh, around this as well, about the sort of, you know, blue sky thinking, don't just rip up everything and assume there's nothing because there's a, there's a, but you do have constraints. You have to be create, creative within certain kind of boundaries. But what's, the, what's, what's your sort of, what's your, what are your top tips to people that are trying to just get their, organization to get a little bit more creative the 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 hard truth here is it's usually it's often the people managers and the, the executives who are asking that question who are the cause of most of the problems by the time you are an executive or you're the manager of the department you have a lot of power you are the most visible figure over the group and the processes and the way things get done are largely of your creation. And even if you are convinced that things need to change, you are probably just by nature of your own attitudes and, and preferences, the greatest inhibitor of that very process, that, that, that very thing. And the reason for that is very simple that we, we become blind to it. We, we think that um, we, we forget that um, it's all these, these small decisions that you make as a manager that prevent change from happening. So uh, to be more more precise or, or more concrete, if I was a boss and I wanted change to happen, I'd have to be comfortable with my own assumptions being challenged. I may have decided that, uh, you know, um, like a, a common example which is relevant to me since uh, I wrote a book about remote work, but a common thing I hear about is uh, people, workers want to work remotely, they want to work from home. And the boss will say, no, we don't do that here. We don't do that here. I want everyone in the office um, just because that's the way we've always worked. That's the way we've always done it. A, I don't know if you know this, but this is basically is, is something that comes up in just about every single conversation we have here. <laughs> it's what a dumb idea not letting people do any remote work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's um, um, obviously because I wrote a book about it. It's always on my mind. But um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a classic example of these acculturated beliefs we have and the manager says, well, no, I, I want change to happen. I want better ideas, but no, you can't, you can't try this thing. Um, the answer for the manager has to, the, 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 or the executive has to say that I have to be willing to have my assumptions, my beliefs 
about how this group works to be challenged. And the way you do that is through an experiment. If you have an employee that says, I want to work remotely, it's very easy to design an experiment to test this. Say, okay, for a week, you can work remotely or two weeks. Uh, I expect that your performance will be just as good, that your coworkers will be happy with you meeting all your all their expectations of you. And if in two weeks go by and your work is good, no one no one's complaining, then you can continue. If it turns out that you, we do the experiment and uh, your productivity drops or your coworkers find you unresponsive, then we have a problem and uh, remote work isn't gonna work in this case. But that notion of experimentation has to become the executive or manager's answer to this, to be willing to try things and to know some of those things won't work, but to get their subordinates to see through demonstration that they can come to the boss with a challenging idea and the boss will say, you know, I'm not sure I like this, but I'm happy to have us try. And we'll set up an experiment to try and see if this other way of working works. And even if it fails, you're at least inviting all your staff to think about other experiments that should be done. And if you generate, you move the culture from being conservative to being one that's good at doing experiments, then the byproduct of that will be a more creative culture. But it starts with the person in power, which is the manager. If they say yes to more things and more challenging things, they'll get more interesting results. That's the only way. This is really interesting because I've got a question in here, um, anonymous and paraphrased, but uh, for obvious <laughs> reasons. Um, the most creative thing I can do at the moment is write a new CV. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm in an organization where we're not creative and we are very constrained by what we're doing um, and it is driven by senior management how do we or how can i make a difference can we make a difference or do we have to be in those kind of leadership positions um should i just go somewhere else basically the short answer is probably i'll be honest the short answer is probably you should go somewhere else if you're talented and you have a good reputation and you know the kind of work environment that you'll be happy in uh, you should look for it that Picking your manager, I think, is by far the most important decision that you make in a career. I used to think it was the project. I used to think it was how exciting or how excited I was about the, work, the thing I was going to make. But that your manager defines most elements of what will possibly make you happy. Even if you work at a, on a boring product, if you have a really good manager, they'll find a way to make it interesting. They'll find a way to challenge you and to help you grow. So I would say instead of trying to take on changing an entire organization's culture, which is really hard to do, uh, it's much as hard as it is to look for a new job. That's the preferential path. But that feels like a cop out. That feels like a cop out. So what I would say is, um, it's 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 never uniform. Even if you worked at a bank, which are among the more conservative organizations in the history of humanity, even if you worked at the conservative place, there's still going to be a spectrum of attitudes among managers there. There are going to be some people in some departments that are more open-minded and are more ambitious than others, and you need to seek them out. You need to look for those parts of the organization. Um, research and development is, every organization is some kind of research and development group. Often they are too experimental and they're not interested in actually shipping anything, but there, there, there's a pocket in every organization, a manager in every organization who is most open to new ideas. And if you want to change the culture or you want to have an environment for yourself that's more suitable for your own personality, 
that's where you look is who in this organization is the most like what I want. Let me go there. Then at least you'll have a partner in crime, not partner in crime, a partner in, uh, I wish there was a better phrase than that. You'll have an ally <laughs> in, um, <laughs> in influencing the rest of the organization that you'll be you and your boss who both feel like the culture in general should be more, you know, whatever attribute you want to call it, yeah. more aggressive, more ambitious. And then the two of you can work together or, and then you'll find another ally. And that's how culture change happens. The accumulation of allies who are all willing to take small risks together and now and validate for everybody else that this different approach works. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we did a, 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 another hangout last week or the week before with Art Papas, who's the founder CEO of Bullhorn, which is a very big business now. Uh, and that was actually specifically on turning the culture that they had there. He was the founder, grew the company. It's eight or 900 people now. Um, and at some point along the way, it went turned from a culture of solving problems to a culture of growth, and we're going to take over the world. And you, I mean, you're a smart guy. You don't need to um, be told the difference between the two cultures. It's like, let's do everything we can to make our customers really happy. To Hey, we want to be the biggest, fastest growing, moving thing. And yeah. turning that around was, was very hard. But one of the things that, that he said was that if the CEO isn't bought in and he's the CEO and founder, there's no way you can do it. It's um, certainly very hard. There are stories in organizations of skunk work projects and people who are subversive and they manage their own team in a different way. But that's much harder than working behind the sale of an executive or the CEO of the company, for sure. Um, Follow-up question to that first question is, um, do you know any good job sites for creative Yeah, I feel bad now. I, I've get, I, I inadvertently gave career advice. Um, the, uh, uh, well, that, that I think should be your next book. I think something that you, you said earlier on, picking your manager. Picking and your I've, manager, I've been, yeah. I've been through the find an exciting company, find a great environment, find a lovely office, find somewhere that's close to your home, find somewhere that's a long way away because you don't like your family. <laughs> uh, people yeah. use different things. I mean, they have, they have different um, reasons. But actually really kind of understanding that right from there. Set. Yeah, I think uh, hugely important. You could do a great service to the world there, Scott. Well, um, the 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 best advice that I can think of, the jo job sites is not it. I think that's a really hard way to find a job. You really want to use your network, and part of why it's always worthwhile to invest in your network is um, that's a group of people who know you, who you've worked with who have the best lens on your talent and ability and can refer you. And that is the way you find jobs is you go to the people you've worked with in the past who you've maintained some kind of pleasant relationship with and say, Hey, you know, we worked together a few years ago. I'm looking for a job now. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't have that option either. That's why I decided becoming an entrepreneur. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I'm in the same, I'm in the same boat as you. I, I don't, I don't have a boss. Uh, I haven't really had a boss in a long time. But when I think about if I did need to find a job now, I would first go to my network and find out who in my network actually thinks highly of me. <laughs> like that's part of the test of looking for a job. But 
I'd go through my network. I think, who do I know? What organizations and get them for a beer. And uh, that's how you find a job because that gets you around all of the, it gets you out of these enormous resume submission piles. Oh. And it also gets you an intro that's you're referred that Sally can talk to her boss and go, yeah, I worked, I worked with Mark 10 years ago. He's one of the best people I worked with and he's looking for a job. And then you, you're not only getting around the resume piles, but you're getting introduced in a positive way by someone that the hiring manager already trusts. And that's, that's like the ideal situation, but two removed, three removed, that's even better. That's still good compared to submitting stuff blindly where who knows? I always wonder with the job sites how long it takes before an actual human being looks at the resume. I have to imagine there's all kinds of filtering and processing and and um, that all just seems very up, upstream. Yeah. So we've we just been through a recruitment process actually. One of the things we did do was use job boards and we got a lot of response, but the quality of the response, it was... It was like reading the comments in an online publication. So I mean, we we had a ton of people that were completely unqualified, completely un. I mean, there's some kind of algorithmic connection, and you kind of click to submit, and people are just you know clearly sitting at home and just kind of sending off loads of loads of CVs and applications without a covering letter or anything. We sort of responded to them and asked them to you know, just give us a little bit of information about why this role might be suitable for them. And that cut down the kind of follow-up response by about 90%. Actually, it was quite shocking. Um, in the end, we actually find, well, here's one of the people we found. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Through uh, an agency. I mean, actually, you know, people really ding agencies, uh, recruitment agencies, for lots of very good reasons. Um, often but one of the things they do very very well which you've talked about uh, as being valuable is maintain that connection and that network of people that they've placed and, and they, yeah and they want to move uh, go back yeah it's there's no way around it i mean we're human creatures we're social and a lot of what you, as a hiring manager that's part of what you're hoping to do that your network will help you find good people too so it's there is a mag there is a there is a win-win there. If you're actually good at what you do, um, your network should know that, and the hiring manager is looking to use their network to find you. So, yeah. Um, okay. So another question: Can, Is it worth? Is it worth? Is it worth bringing in consultants to help your creative process? Um. <laughs> some qualifications. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I think uh, I have. I think. Um, Probably, probably not. Um, consultancy in general is a um, it's a dangerous game of um, the consultants. And I don't want to I don't want to insult all the consultants out there. There are some fantastic consultants who provide a lot of value in all different elements of what whatever. I, I'm not anti-consultant, but um, there are certain fundamental things that a manager has to decide to do for themselves. And no consultant can do that for them. The illusion of consultancy can be that you're paying someone to come in to give the pretense of a new technique or a new model or a new philosophy. And that can be a very effective thing. People, people, oh, we, the boss has paid $10,000 to bring this consultant and teaches this method. Wow, things are changing. 
But until you get back into the room where decisions are made, um, all the stuff doesn't really isn't really changing anything. So I'm mm. I'm generally skeptical about consultants as a way to solve problems. However, there can be some specific techniques that if if there are particularly particular things that your group is bad at, uh, meetings being one, like brainstorming meetings, come up all the time as this critical magical thing. And, um, but it is true that a lot of groups are terrible at just basic conversations and meetings. Having someone come in to show you a simple technique to improve the quality of ideas that get discussed and and come up with a better way to when the meeting ends to capture that information and make sure it gets used, like that can be useful. But um, at the end of the day, it comes back to what we talked about before. The manager's in the room. There's the the uh, more interesting but riskier idea on the table. And then there's the conservative thing they've done 100 times before. At some point, the manager has to decide we're going to do the more interesting but riskier thing. We're going to do the unknown thing. And no consultant can do that for the manager. The manager has to decide to take that risk on themselves. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right, and there obviously are things that you can outsource very effectively. Um, but there are, I mean, I think I would imagine Uber have got a bunch of diversity consultants in at the moment to sort out their diversity issues. For example, <laughs> yeah, and box, box uh, yeah. checked, and off they go. Um, and they have a long way to go, but I guess um, <laughs> uh, to but. They have to start somewhere. Um, someone coming in and giving them a better language or a better way to assess their problems, that helps. Even if it only helps 10%, that could be money well spent because there's no other way to get that 10% of knowledge. So, yeah, um, that's I can't help but, thinking that yeah. most of the people learn to change it, but um, another story. Um, okay, sorry, I had another, another thing coming in. Uh, there. Uh, Brainstorming, a couple of, couple of things. Are there any, any things that you see happening consistently in brainstorming where people think that's the way to do it and it really isn't? What are the, what are the, what are the sort of top? The, uh, the, well, there's a lot there. The, the, the first is that that word is used real, in a very sloppy way. That The term comes from Alex Osborne. He wrote a book in the 1950s called uh, Applied Information. And it's actually a very good book. And it, he documents his specific technique for brainstorming. And the goal of that technique is very simple. The goal is purely volume of ideas. That's the goal of the method to, when you have some, some project early on, you're starting off, you just want a big pile of stuff to play with. That's what brainstorming does. That's what a brainstorm meeting is. And he has a technique for doing a basic, it's basically facilitation to make sure that everybody gets a chance to contribute and to grow a big list. And um, the, there's no bad idea. In exactly, everything. exactly. Uh, and there's a few other things that he teaches. Oh, there are bad. Is, is this true <laughs> that there are no bad ideas? <laughs> I, I, I hate that phrase. It's um, um, there are terrible ideas. Of course, there are terrible ideas. Um, I mean, the the whole United Airlines fiasco and their policies. These are these are <laughs> bad ideas. We we know we know there are better ways to handle a lot of these things. So of course, there are bad ideas. Really what that phrase is implied to mean is that at the moment that you are coming up with stuff, you can't really know which ones are the bad ideas yet because you are in this – when you're, you're generating stuff, you're not really sure yet exactly what even the problem is that you're going to solve. You may have started with a notion that you're going to make a better um, uh, make a better cell phone. That's, that's, you, work at, you work at Motorola and that's the project team that you're on. 
But you may realize as you're playing around with different ideas that there's another kind of problem to solve, which changes your criteria for what a good or bad idea is. So of course there are bad ideas, but the, that, that saying is meant to imply that while we're in this place where we're trying to generate ideas, we want volume, it helps us to be optimistic. And when someone says something that in our, in our brain, we're going, that's the stupidest thing. <laughs> The goal for us then is how do I twist what they said and add to it or modify it so I have an additional idea that is more interesting than what they said. That's the attitude that you want when you are being generative. And so um, but my biggest critique is that word is used in a very sloppy way to refer to any kind of conversation or discussion where you're talking about ideas. And that's not really true. It's a very specific and much more narrow meaning. And if you use it that way, it's, it's perfectly fine. It does its job. It gets you a big pile of ideas. How you vet through that and how you make decisions around it, that's another matter. Brainstorming is not intended to, to help you with those. So that's much, it's much more at the kind of creation stage. And, and one of the things I liked about um, your book was really kind of taking things from creation to development. And this is almost, I mean, it sounds quite, we're looking at kind of effort and skills and quality and value and uh, and all of those things that kind of relate back to the outside yeah, world, yeah. I suppose. And that's really where, again, why the word itself is just a problem. It's just I try not to use it all that much. So you have, let's, you have a great idea. You brainstorm. You come up with a fantastic idea for something. There's no guarantee that the idea you, an idea you come up with is even possible given the laws of physics in the world. <laughs> like 400 years ago or 300 years ago, uh, people like Isaac Newton, they believed in the Philosopher's Stone. They thought there was a way – to transform lead into gold. And if you could do that, you could be immensely wealthy and solve all these problems. And, and Isaac Newton was one of the most brilliant people of all time. He lives up to the genius label, which I use very carefully. And he believed in the Philosopher's Stone. He spent years doing research and doing experiments to try to prove that it was possible. So he had an idea, he had an idea. Uh, the idea is fine, the idea is good, but the idea itself doesn't get you execution. And the skill of coming up with an idea is one thing. Developing that idea into a concept or even into a prototype, that's a whole nother set of skills. And that set of skills looks a lot more like work. There's nothing magical about it. Someone has to make oh, the prototype, well, I'm not write the draft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's part of, to get back to one of your early questions, that's part of the mythology here is that we imagine that it's all just fun, that if you're good at this stuff, it's just fun. You just idea pops in your head and presto, change now the finished thing will just magically complete itself on its own, which has never been true at any time so in history, a, but still we like to believe this it. Is a it's a really important thing, because I think, um, you have ADHD, right? Uh, yes. No, yes. I don't. No, I don't. I'm sorry. Oh, oh I thought... <laughs> I'm just joking with you. Yes, I do. No, I don't. Yes, I do. Yeah, I what, what are we talking about? <laughs> Oh, squirrel. Um, I, I discovered I had it I mean, a few years ago, and, and um, I just thought I was really bad at following through with things and finishing things and stuff like that. But um, I mean, I think sort of creative people often have a particular kind of way of working, whereas, um, you know, you kind of move that into to work. I'm not afraid of hard work. I really enjoy it. But there's definitely a point when things get very kind of processy that... I find it hard to, I, I find it hard to kind of focus and, and, and complete those things. Whereas other people don't have the ideas. How do you, how do you, 
is there is there anything in that, or am I I just sort of making my trying to make myself feel better about not completing the projects I've I've started? <laughs> well, I, I don't. Well, I can't answer that last part of the question. That's going to be a question, I think, for your you know your therapist or something. I don't know. Uh, I can tell you I, that. I think that there is something there. I I I haven't seen I haven't seen any researchers who delved into examining this particular question, but I do think that some people tend to be better at the beginning of projects, that they're either more engaged or they're more excited or they feel more comfortable working when things are still less defined. And then there are other people who prefer more structure and they are much better at the the the, you know, the, the, the later parts of projects where things are being finished and refined and it's about precision and you know quality uh, I, i'm more like you and that i know i'm better at the first half of projects uh, as a project manager i knew i was better at the first half uh, i was good i was okay to good at like finishing and shipping uh, i didn't mind it i, I did like yeah. it but if my i thought i was better much better than average at the at the first half and figuring out those bigger questions um, both in terms of my interest level, but also in my skill set. But I haven't seen anybody in all the reading I've done. I haven't seen anybody categorize people and their preferences on this spectrum. So maybe when we're done with this chat, I'm going to go and see if I can find. I have to imagine someone has. There's probably some yeah. you know, clever, clever names for like you know early project people and late project people or some. But um, I believe I, I do believe that there is tendencies there. But I don't. I haven't seen it documented. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I, I've obviously done a bit of um, self-obsessed as we all are. Um, done a bit of kind of reading around ADHD and it's and it's the kind of the characteristics that make it a useful thing. The characteristics that make it a, an unhelpful thing. Actually, um, inspired by I think it was a talk at um, Boss when you were there. Were you there for Greg Bogus who talked about um, depression? I don't think so. Yeah, maybe, I don't that think so. The, maybe that was the year after. He talked about he he talked about being bipolar, um, you know, and being a software engineer, being bipolar, and he also mentioned ADHD, mm. and he listed out all these these characteristics of ADHD people, and I was sitting there going, okay, you know what, it's fine. Where, where's the ADHD one? Because I assumed <laughs> there was going to be like another set. Of things. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, but uh, actually. It's sort of in evolutionary biology, um, a lot of kind of um, disorders and conditions are incredibly helpful. Um, and there's a lot of kind of research that says actually sort of psycho, uh, psychotics are a, uh, an incredibly important contributor to society. Mm -hmm. And that maybe even one, two percent of the population is, uh, is, is, is psychotic. Yeah, uh, uh, our brains are fascinating. We don't fully understand them. I don't think we ever will. And you're right. I think that in every thing that gets labeled a disorder, certainly about brain science, there's some element of it that's that's there's there's some utility there. There's some reason why we have the disorders that we have. But I take your point more broadly, and it's certainly it's germane to the book about self-awareness. That it's very easy to delude yourself or be in denial about how you tend to think and how you tend to feel and what you're good at and what you're bad at. Being self-aware about the, the strengths and weaknesses you have or the conditions 
weaknesses that you have, being self-aware about them and, and managing them and owning them is a big part of being productive. Mm. Um, people always ask me for these little tricks or pets. I'm a writer. Like, well, how do you write in the morning? Do you write in the evening? Do you, do you have a glass of wine? Do you, and I'm like, why? Like, if I told you the answer, it's not going to help you because you're different. You are not me. And there's a great book. I, it's referenced in, in the day. <laughs> you may not like having a glass of wine in the morning. Exactly. Don't do it because some writer you met does it. That's ridiculous. Yeah. It's, it's such a shallow way of thinking about the problem that you're trying but to solve. Have you ever read uh, Hunter S. Thompson's day? Yeah, I don't, you know, uh, as much as I, I'm a fan of his insanity, um, his, <laughs> I, I find it hard to believe he could survive. Any human being could survive a month with that dot with that diet but um i bet that I, but from what i understand though i bet he um comes close to the threshold of what humans could what he came close to the threshold of what humans can survive <laughs> I but certainly, uh so yeah. i think it is I'll, I'll share it in the uh <laughs> yeah um uh, I, had a, I had a point now that I've lost because you made me laugh. Uh, uh, yeah, self-awareness. Self-awareness. That uh, one thing I advocate in the book, it's a common thing that creativity expert type people advocate, is keeping a journal. Having some place that's just for you every day where you are allowed to put your thoughts and no one's going to see it. You don't be afraid of being judged or criticized, but having a place to put your thoughts down. And that provides a bunch of functions that are practically it's not about some romantic idea of like finding the muse or something. It's practical and it's based on how our brains work. Our memories are terrible. So if you're not writing stuff down somewhere, some of the time, you're losing a lot of the stuff that's going through your brain. And that's stuff that's going to be useful to you in, in developing ideas. But more importantly, to your point, I'm getting, I know this is long-winded, but um, that's where you start to learn about your own self-awareness. Maybe you tend to have more ideas in the morning. Maybe you tend to be more – it's easier for you to be creative and and, tr and, and experiment with, with thoughts at night. Maybe it is with a glass of wine. Maybe it's after you go for a walk. That's information you can only get by having some practice of putting your ideas down. And people are often surprised. When they start doing that, they're surprised by how many ideas they come across during the day. But they're also surprised. Maybe they're not really as much of a morning person as they thought. That morning, they're morning person for being productive, but for having more interesting thoughts, that happens in the afternoon for them. They're surprised, and they only get that data by having the habit of keeping some some kind of journal. That's that's really that's that's that yeah, very interesting. I hadn't because uh, you sort of mentioned. I mean, you talk about that in the book. I don't, I don't, I didn't pick up on that as being such an important point. Um, but it, uh, it makes perfect sense. And do you think there's something about having a, when you say journal, do you mean like a book where you open it up? Yeah, I, well, I, I'm not that picky about it. I think or it's, like, note electronic. Yeah, I think whatever works for whatever works for you. I, 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 keep a little, I keep a little book, like a little notebook. I always have one with me. When it, my friends know when we go out to dinner or whatever, I may pull it out and just write stuff down because they said something interesting or I just had a thought. I have it with me all the time. I don't necessarily go back to it that often and look, but just the habit of having it, it reinforces for me, I'm paying attention to what I am thinking. I'm, pay, pay, I'm paying attention to what things are interesting. I, 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 there is research around handwriting that it does engage our brains in a different way and that that way is probably better for retention and it may even be, be better for helping you think as you are doing it. 
Um, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I could probably find the paper. It makes sense to me that I've I was just seen because... a couple of studies on this on uh, students taking. This yes, exactly, exactly right. And it makes sense if you think about our brains that you're using your fingers more carefully. Your brain's going to be engaged in a different way. You're going to have a sensory, a different kind of sensory memory of the event of writing stuff down. Um, and I know that when I write stuff down, I'm more likely to remember it because I will remember. Sometimes I'll remember what it was like to write the thing. <laughs> so there's yes. an extra layer of memory because you're yeah. you're actually actively anyway. Well, um, I'll, I'll usually have, you know, there'll be like a little red wine ring there. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that. Yep. <laughs> that, that plane journey or whatever it was. Um, okay, we're, we're, actually, we're actually getting very close to time. I don't quite know how we've, how we've gone, gone for now already. We didn't even start that. We started about kind of three minutes, three minutes after time. So um, you have um, you have filled filled the time quite spectacularly. Um, what's the best? What's the toughest question that anyone's asked you? Because you've been doing a book tour and you do a book tour, you talk about the thing, then you take questions from the audience. So you get lots of lots of questions, and some of them, I'm sure, are fantastically dull. And then there are some of them that you go, "Oh my god, I hadn't thought of that." What, what what's the best question anyone's asked you about the book the most challenging one well the, the challenging questions that i get mo most of the questions i get are more practical because the reasons why people want to read a book like this they're, they're practical they, they 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 work with ideas all day and they want to be better at it or they they want to finish their novel or so most of the questions i get are practical and those are not that hard to answer because this stuff is well trod this is an old subject and I've read, I'm very well read on the subject, so I can usually refer yeah. to someone else who's covered the question better than I have. The hard questions are the more, um, the more, it's the right word, the more the questions about meaning, about, uh, so one of the chapters in the book is, is what is good? It's this question that every creative person, and by that I mean people who make stuff has to answer, what is good? Is this good enough, to, is this thing good enough to ship? Is this good enough to publish? Is this good enough to show a draft? Is this draft good enough to show my friend? What is good? And the argument that I make in the book is that there is no answer. Each person has to decide for themselves what they think good is. And that's a driving force for why you make stuff. You want to make something that is good. That could be you want to be wealthy and good for you is something that sells. It could be you want to uh, reduce poverty and what's good for you is something that helps uh, developing countries. But what is good is this fundamental question, and it's not a question other people can ask. Uh, other people, other people can answer for you. So some, sometimes people turn that question on me, and they ask me to define what I think is good. Um, and <laughs> usually, usually I, I, right? And usually I dodge that by saying, "What is good is um, is the question, not the answer." <laughs> so, so uh, I get myself out of that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's very nicely done. Well, look, it's, we're just coming up to time, so uh, I, I really, really appreciate you um, you coming on. I'm, I'm sorry I couldn't um, couldn't see more of you and see you in sort of full animated mode. Um, and I apologise to uh, everyone that's been uh, just seeing just seeing me because um, I wouldn't wish that. I mean, literally wish that on anybody i wouldn't make my children do that for an hour as a punishment <laughs> so, um really looking forward to seeing you in boston in september um book is available on amazon everywhere sure. yes yeah 
everywhere and anywhere. Um, any other questions, if people have things that they want to, um, to ask Scott, do uh, get in touch with me and I can pass things on or try and help. And uh, thank you. I mean, I think one of the... One of the genius things about you is you are very well read. You love going off and finding out about stuff, but you don't, you know, you're not kind of dangling that in front of people. You don't sort of sit there like a thought leader type expert on something. You're very, very practical, very, very focused on just helping people. And I think that's a really, it's a really, really great thing. And it's, it's um, you know, I, I, I really hope that the book is doing very well. It seems to be doing very well. Well, thank you. That was a nice compliment. I appreciate that. That's a pleasure. And uh, we'll we'll see you in September. Um, if you're over in the UK before then, do let us know. And uh, at the very least, um, I will uh, would love to come and buy you a beer. But uh, um, otherwise, uh, I'll see you in September. Lovely. Sounds good. Great. Thanks, Thanks so course. much, Scott. Okay. Um, don't know how this is going to end because uh, the screen's now frozen. So, uh, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Hey, Boss Europe is 5th and 6th of June. Uh, Boss USA is 18th, 20th September. I'm signing out. Has it stopped? No.